Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Kump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, several months ago, you did a series of programs on global flood legends from around the world. Mm -hmm. You recently returned from a trip to Michigan, and you said you saw something there that brought back to your mind many of the ideas and details we discussed when we considered the flood legends of people groups other than the Hebrews. Oh yeah, Scott, my wife, Karen, and I went way up to the tip of the thumb of Michigan for a few days of rest and relaxation to celebrate our 45th wedding anniversary. Well, congratulations to Dr. and Dr. Scripture. (laughs) (laughs) She's put up with me for a long time. (laughs) But anyway, I know what you mean by the thumb of Michigan, but there could be many listeners not from the Midwest and also those who do not live in the USA who would have no clue as to what the thumb of Michigan is. <laughs> Where or what are you talking about? Oh, okay, I, I guess I shouldn't assume everyone is familiar with the geography of the states in the U.S. or that a place in Michigan is called the thumb. But Scott, I have to tell you this. As we were driving to the place we were going, we kept seeing businesses in the little towns named Thumb This and mm. Thumb That. There was the Thumb Hardware Store, the Thumb Dental Office, and the Thumb <laughs> Bank. And my thought was, Wow, that Thumb family sure owns a lot of businesses <laughs> around here. That's Thumb Tacky. And then, uh, <laughs> and then we realized the word Thumb meant the area we were in. You see, the state of Michigan is shaped very similar to a mitten. If you look at your left hand with your fingers held together and your thumbs sticking out 30 or 40 degrees, that's pretty close to the shape of Michigan. The southern boundary, or the wrist, is land, where the state line between Indiana on the west and Ohio on the right half is. And the shape of the mitten, then, is surrounded by water, the Great Lakes. So the northeast portion of Michigan is a peninsula that protrudes up into Lake Huron, and it looks like the thumb of a mitten. So it makes sense that so many things have the word thumb in the name. Mm -hmm. It identifies the region of the state. Exactly. And we stayed in a cabin at the very tip of the thumb, right on the shore of Lake Huron. It was beautiful. You could even see the sunrise and sunset on the water, which, by the way, is an example of the language of appearance, something the Bible also frequently uses when describing nature and doesn't mean I or the biblical authors didn't realize it's actually the earth rotating that causes the sun to look like it's moving from east to west. Well, the shore of Lake Huron sounds like a really great place for an anniversary celebration. It sure was. But what did you see there that caused you to recall the various flood legends from around the world, Dr. Scripture? Well, we enjoy learning about the history of the localities we visit. And not far from where we stayed was a place that sounded really interesting, the Sanilac Petroglyphs Historic State Park. Scott, do you know what petroglyphs are? Yes, they're pictures or writing in stone. That's right. And Native American peoples would carve images related to their religious stories in stone and then use the petroglyphs to teach their stories to successive generations. So the main feature of the Sanilac Park is a 1,000-square-foot sandstone outcrop with around 165 petroglyphs on it. Cool. The largest grouping of such carvings in Michigan. They were likely carved between 300 and 1400 years ago. That's a pretty large time span. 
why wouldn't they know more precisely when they were carved? Well, that's a good question, Scott. Now, I may not have every detail right, but according to what I've read on various historical websites, what happened was the tribes that lived in the Saginaw area, which is the Thumb region of Michigan, were gone for hundreds of years, and they no longer gathered at that site for tribal ceremonies. The land had been inhabited by the Chippewa Nation, and the Anishinaabe tribe lived in that specific region through which the Cass River flows. The petroglyphs are right near the river, but they were abandoned and then forgotten about being totally overgrown by the dense forest that covered the thumb back in the 1800s. But they were then discovered by the area's settlers after much of the Thumb region was burned by a massive forest fire in 1881. Hmm. Now, Scott, have you ever heard of the Great Thumb Fire of 1881? You know, the only thumb fires I'm familiar with are when I touch something hot on the stove. <laughs> <laughs> that said, I wonder how it compares to what's happening in Canada right now. Well, the area of the Thumb is certainly not as vast as what's on fire in Canada. But the fire burned over a million acres in less than a day. Wow. It killed 282 people in four counties. The fire was so huge, it changed the ecology and economy of the thumb. The main activity of the area had been logging and was an important source of timber for the Great Lakes region. But the forests were completely destroyed. And thus, the people living there switched over to farming, which is the main activity of the area to this day. So back to your question. As a result of the fire, all the vegetation in the area being gone, they found the petroglyphs. However, there was no record of when they were originally created. But the pictographs included representations of many of the stories of the Anishinaabe people, including their creation and flood stories. And hearing about their flood story reminded you of some of the other flood legends of different peoples from around the world. Right. Dr. Scripture, I remember you saying that a researcher had found over 300 different global flood stories in the traditions of various people groups and tribes in the Western Hemisphere alone. So you figure the story of the Anishinaabe people probably would have been one of them? I would think so, Scott. And so what I want to do now is read some excerpts from a publication that gives one of the versions of the Anishinaabe creation flood story. And what I found as I've looked at several sources of information on this is their creation story is conflated with their flood story. In fact, they refer to what happens after the flood as a second creation. So when they talk about creation, the events of the flood are included as part of it. What I'll be reading parts of is the version published by the Little Traverse Bay Bands of Odawa Indians. The version is called The Creation Story, Turtle Island. And what we'll see in this version is there's very little about creation in it. Quote, long ago after the Great Mystery, or Kichi Manitou, first populated the earth, the Anishinaabe, or original people, strayed from their harmonious ways and began to argue and fight with one another. Brother turned against brother, and soon the Anishinaabe were killing one another over hunting grounds and other disagreements. Seeing that harmony, brotherhood, sisterhood, and respect for all living things no longer prevailed on earth, Kichi Manitou decided to purify the earth. He did this with water. 
The water came in the form of a great flood upon the earth, destroying the Anishinaabe people and most of the animals as well. Only Nana Buzhu, the central figure in many of the Anishinaabe oral traditions, was able to survive the flood, along with a few animals and birds who managed to swim and fly. Nana Buzhu floated on a huge log searching for land, but none was to be found as the earth was now covered by the great flood. Nana Buzhu allowed the remaining animals and birds to take turns resting on the log as well. I'm going to stop there and ask you, Scott, what parallels with the biblical account of the flood have you noticed so far? Well, the God in their story sends a flood because the people were doing wrong. They were fighting and killing one another, which is like the description in Genesis 6 where the Lord said that the earth was filled with violence. Mm -hmm. Another similarity is that all the people died in the flood except for Nanabuzhu, and most of the animals and birds died as well. He survived on a huge log, which he allowed some animals and birds to get on so that they could survive too. And it sure sounds like the description of the flood is a global one, just as Genesis stresses. Uh, Yes. A key observation is that it was a global flood. I'll read this sentence again. Nanabuzhu floated on a huge log searching for land, but none was to be found as the earth was now covered by the great flood. Now then, what follows in the story includes a lot of details that we don't have time to read. So I'm going to summarize what happens next. Nanabusu says he's going to swim to the bottom and grab a handful of earth. And with the small bit of earth, he would create a new land for them to live on with the help of the four winds and Kichimanitu. But it's too deep and he can't reach the bottom. So then the loon speaks up and says he can dive under the water for a long way, and he will try to make it to the bottom and return with some earth in his beak. But the loon couldn't make it and said there must be no bottom to this water. Then a bird called the hell diver tries it, but he can't reach the bottom either. So notice it was birds that tried to find earth, just as in the Genesis account when Noah was trying to determine if there was any land yet. That is fascinating. I know that what they were trying to do is not the same as the raven and the dove in the Genesis account, but you can still see that some of the specific details from the original story were preserved even though so much was distorted. That kind of correlation cannot be coincidence. Well, that's for sure, Scott. So, in the rest of the Anishinaabe story, more animals try but fail to get some earth from the bottom, including the mink and the turtle. But finally, the muskrat tries, and although he drowns trying, he floats to the surface with some dirt in his paw. And with that, Nanabuzu puts the piece of earth on the turtle's back, and this is what happens. Suddenly, the wind blew from each of the four directions, and the tiny piece of earth on the turtle's back began to grow. It grew larger and larger. Eventually, then, the four winds stopped blowing, and there in the middle of the water was a huge island, which the Anishinaabe say is North America. Now, again, notice the similarity to the Genesis account. In chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. As you pointed out, Scott, these details occurring in each story cannot be explained by coincidence. Given the preponderance of global flood stories around the world, this one belonging to the Anishinaabe people being one of them. There's no denying the people of the earth remember an historical event involving a flood covering the whole earth and a very few surviving people and animals then repopulate the earth. Which account is true? 
From a simple literary perspective, the Genesis account is reasonable and physically conceivable. The Turtle Island story is physically silly. It's simple fantasy, as are all the other legends of the peoples of the earth. But it's easy to discern that one true and factual account would be the source of all the other fanciful stories, the original account being degraded in accuracy as it was passed on orally or in pictorial form. The painstaking care of those who copied the biblical manuscripts is what gives us such confidence that we have what the original writers of Scripture recorded. Indeed, and as I looked at those petroglyphs carved centuries ago in sandstone, and the tour guide pointed out that every tribal elder had their own unique way of interpreting them to tell the story of creation and the flood, I realized, in a way I had never so tangibly appreciated before, how absolutely critical it is that we have the Word of God in written form. It was written in the language of the authors, Hebrew and Greek, and the meaning is defined by the authors as they use the language and grammar and rules of literature of their day. We have an objective record of what God inspired them to write down, not vague pictures or stories passed orally from one person to the next. When that's the means of transmission, we can see the result. A story like the Anishinaabe Turtle Island story. It's interesting. There's a moral to the story, but it's not an accurate account of history. Our confidence in the Bible is based on, for example, what it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever been made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And that's not what I say. That's what Scripture says.